Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program. The Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools are here every Saturday. I know there's been a few glitches lately, but it won't continue. Uh, But we will be here, and we are here today at 12 noon every Saturday to defend and to promote public education. We have a website at www.adogs.info. And on this website, most weeks, we put a press release. Now, this is press release 629. The Prime Minister's Department peddles lies and educational statistics. Why? The most pervasive religious orthodoxy dogs contend in the Australian corridors of power is the sacralisation of the market. Listeners, you might have seen it on Q&A this week when even our Greek um, ex-treasurer, Varoufakis, was prepared to say how important the market is. But when they talked about a market in carbon, Judith Sloan said, oh yes, you must have markets, but that is not quite a market. Let You have to define what a market is. And I thought, my goodness, not only do we have a religious orthodoxy with the market laid up in heaven, (laughs) we now have the doctrine, the (laughs) definition of a market, according to Judith Sloan. (laughs) Well, anyway, this is is our view of it. Uh, The doctrine is that private is not only better than public, but public money is only good for propping up a sectarian private sector rather than supporting an efficient centralised public sector. History, logic and facts give this orthodoxy the lie. Yet, Adherence to this very strange ideology, I mean, even Adam Smith, who invented the idea of the market, would be turning in his grave at what these people think the market is. Um, The adherence to this ideology in the Australian corridors of power anyway, they go to great lengths to turn even simple statistics and facts on their head. The most blatant use of flawed statistics has occurred in recent weeks when the head of the Prime Minister's Department, an Abbott Pine supporter called Michael Thorley, criticised the increased funding under the Gonski Plan for Education. He claimed that it had increased by 40% in the last 10 years without improving the school outcomes. Well... That 40% certainly hasn't been going in increases to public education. But dogs would argue, what did they expect? Even if they did pour all this money, extra money, into education, where did it go? And what did they expect when they had diverted billions of dollars from an efficient public into a private sectarian system, which has failed time and again? It failed in Australia in the 19th century. It has failed in many countries throughout the world. Uh, And the public systems are the ones that have delivered the educational outcomes in places like Finland and the Scandinavian and the German countries. But even Thorley's statistics are as leaky as the accountability of the private market system that he espouses. 
Trevor Cobald from Save Our Schools has produced the following research and Dale will read it to you. Thanks, Jean. Uh, The article here is, it begins, Top Public Service Mandarin Badly Bungled School Funding Figures. In an extraordinary move earlier this month, the head of the Prime Minister's Department, Michael Thorley, criticised increased funding for education within days of the Prime Minister, suggesting that the government would consider fully funding the Gonski School Plan. Only a week after Malcolm Turnbull floated the idea of restoring the last two years of the Gonski plan that was abandoned by Abbott, Thorley used flawed figures to warn against increasing school funding. This seems to have been triggered by the Prime Minister's comment that everyone agrees we need more resources into education and it needs to be needs-based. Turnbull recognises that a high-quality education for all children, regardless of family background, is fundamental for a fair society and a prosperous economy. In response, Thorley, who is a consistent warrior in the cause of small government, lower taxes and cuts to government services, claimed that school funding increased by 40% in the last 10 years without improving school outcomes. It's a claim widely widely used by opponents of the Gonski plan to discredit it and justify the Abbott government's decision to to abandon it. However, Thorley bungled the figures. He grossly exaggerated the actual increase in school funding. Funding per student, adjusted for inflation, actually increased by only 5.3% in total between 2003 and 4 and 2012-2013, some eight times less than Thorley claimed. This is an increase of only 0.57% a year, which amounts to the minuscule average increase of $59 per student per year. Thorley did not source his claim, but it appears to be based on the often repeated claim by the former Education Minister, Christopher Pine, that school funding adjusted for inflation, that is real funding, increased by 44% between 2003 and 2004 and 2012 and 2013. When questioned in Senate estimates by former Senator Penny Wright, about its source, Department of Education officials stated that it was derived from the Productivity Commission's report on government services, ROGS, for 2015. This claimed funding increase is far from the mark. It is incorrect for several reasons. First, the ROGS figure cited by Pine refers only to Commonwealth government funding and excludes state and territory funding. The ROGS shows that school funding by all governments increased in real terms by 21.7%, about half the figure claimed by Pine and Thorley. By citing Commonwealth government funding only, Pine and Thorley use a highly misleading measure of government funding increases because state and territory governments account for nearly three quarters of government funding for schools. In 2012 and 2013, state territory governments accounted for 73.7% of total government funding for schools. Second, Pine's failure to, Pine's figure fails to take into account uh, increasing enrolments. It ignores per-student funding figures published in the ROGS. These show that the real total government funding per student increased by only 12.7%, which is between three and four times less than what Pine claimed. Third, the ROGS figures exaggerate the increase in government funding because they include book entry items for public schools, user cost of capital and depreciation, and other items, payroll tax and school transport, that have increased significantly but which have no impact on school outcomes. These items are not included in figures for government funding of private schools and they are also excluded on the advice of the accounting firm uh, Deloitte Australia from the funding figures on the My School website for public and private schools. They accounted for about 32% of the current dollar increase in public school funding since 2003-2004. The user cost of capital per student increased by 94% over the period, while depreciation increased by 142%. Fourth, the ROGS overestimates the increase in real funding because it underestimates the cost increases, the cost increases facing schools. 
The ROGS uses the General Government Consumption Expenditure Price Index to adjust for rising costs. However, this price index fails to distinguish between different rates of cost increases in specific areas of public provision. A more accurate measure of increasing costs in school is the Wage Price Index for the Education and Training Sector published by the Australian Bureau of Statistics. Using this measure to adjust school funding data for inflation makes a significant difference to the estimates of real funding increases. The ROGS method of adjusting for rising costs results in a much higher increase in real government funding per student than by using the Wage Price Index for Education and Training. In fact, the increase in total government funding, less book entries, payroll tax and student transport per student, deflated by the wage price index, is nearly half that using the ROGS method, 5.3% compared to 9.8%. Both estimates are a far cry from the increase claimed by Thorley and Pine. The fact is that Pine cooked the books by using a selective and highly misleading mixture of school funding. The purpose was to undermine the case for funding for the last two two years of the Gonski Plan, which would have delivered an increase in Commonwealth Government funding of about $7 billion, the large part of which would have gone to public schools who enrol the vast majority of disadvantaged students. Thorley simply jumped on the bandwagon to dissuade the Prime Minister from following through fully on funding Gonski. It's hardly an example of disinterested, objective and accurate advice from the nation's nation's top bureaucrat. There can be little wonder why Australians' national and international test results have failed to improve or have declined. The real funding increase was minuscule and funding has not been targeted to need. The largest increase went to private schools who enrol only a small proportion of disadvantaged students. The increase for public schools was less than half that for private schools. Private school funding per student adjusted for inflation increased by 9.8% or 1.04% a year compared to 4.7% or just 0.5% a year for public schools. Indeed, a research study done by the Melbourne Institute for Applied Economics Economic and Social Research in 2013 found that the decline in Australians, Australia's international test results between 2003 and 2009 was concentrated in private schools. It noted that the decline in performance in both independent and Catholic schools occurred despite substantial increases in government funding. This is not surprising given that so much of the funding given to private schools goes to support lavish facilities, which gives them a marketing advantage over public schools, but are of minimal educational benefit. However, despite the decline in Australia's international test results and the stagnation in national test results, there have been some significant improvements. Year 12 results have improved significantly since 2003. Average retention rates to Year 12 increased from 72 to 82% and increased for Indigenous students from 40 to 55%. Average Year 12 completion rates increased from 69 to 74% and increased for low SES students from 64 to 68%. The proportion of Year 12 students achieving an ATAR score of 50 plus increased from 25 to 43% between 2006 and 2013. There have also been significant improvements in some primary school results in international and national tests. Critics also ignore the fact that Australia's school system has been highly successful in integrating the children of immigrant families into schools as shown by a recent OECD report. Australia's immigrant students have amongst the highest results of immigrants in the OECD and Australia is one of only four OECD countries where immigrant students achieve similar or better results than non-immigrant students. Social alienation amongst Australian immigrant students is low compared to many other countries. The success of schools in integrating immigrant children is a very significant factor behind Australia's multicultural success story. Thus, school results are not as bleak as that that represented by Thorley and, before him, Pine. Nevertheless, it is true that there's much room for improvement. In particular, achievement gaps between the rich and poor are large, have not decreased in recent years and have increased in several instances. Disadvantaged students remain two to four years of learning behind their wealthy peers at age 15. A large proportion of disadvantaged students do not 
achieve international and national benchmarks in reading and numeracy. For example, 23% of 15-year-old low SES students did not achieve the OECD's proficiency standards in reading and 30% did not achieve the mathematics standard in 2012. The fact is that needs-based funding in Australia, especially for low SES students, has only ever been a very small proportion of total school funding, as demonstrated by a research report prepared for the Gonski Review, Review in 2011. This is the whole point of the Gonski Reforms to better target future increases in school funding. As David Gonski himself stated in the response to the criticism of his plan by the National Commission of Audit that increased funding has failed to improve outcomes, he said, the essence of what we contended and still do was that the way monies are applied is the important driver. Increasing money where it counts is vital. The monies distributed over a 12-year period to which the Commission refers were not applied on a needs-based aspirational system. The case for fully funding the Gonski Plan remains compelling and accords with the Prime Minister's long-held vision of a fair, economically prosperous, multicultural society. Increasing needs-based funding in schools is critical to reducing injustice and inequity in education, maintaining social tolerance and cohesion, improving workforce participation and skills, and increasing productivity. Thorley's public comment immediately followed Turnbull's comments on needs-based funding can only be seen as an astounding and flagrant rebuttal of his Prime Minister. It was blatantly designed to appeal to conservative opponents of increasing education and social expenditure by a Prime Minister who recognises their worth to a society and the economy. But then Thorley was appointed as the government's top advisor by Tony Abbott. This week, Thorley announced his resignation from PM&C to take effect from the end of January. The ABC reported that there have been tensions in government ranks about Thorley's performance during the changeover from Abbott to Turnbull, with suggestions he was not as responsive as he should have been. His comments on education funding so soon after Turnbull's may well have been a turning point. In contrast to Abbott and Pine, Thorley and others, the Australian people have consistently supported Gonski funding, so much so that Abbott was forced to proclaim that he had a unity ticket with the ALP on the issue before the last election, only to abandon it immediately after he was elected. Pine ducked and weaved and lied about implementing Gonski before and after the election. Now, Labor is dancing around fully implementing the plan it devised in government. It talks about its support of Gonski principles, but avoids any commitment to funding the last two years when the necessary big increases are due. Labor's timidity about a plan that designed, that it designed and which has widespread support is disgraceful. What has happened to its ideals of a fair society and equity in education? Labor needs to stand up for Gonski. And that was from Trevor, Co- Trevor Cobalt. Yes, well, uh, Trevor is based in Canberra, so obviously he gets the inside information about what's happening in the corridors of power. Um, and I'll be talking a bit later about what happens in the corridors of power in America. But um, I think that already we have in Australia a very good idea of what happens when you open education to the market. I'm rather amused when I see the Australian, for example, on their front page telling me that there has been a $1 billion sting in a training college wart. $1 billion. Just think what that would do for the public sector in education in Australia and we would know exactly where that $1 billion had gone. But no, they opened the TAFE sector to the market. And um, there is under the headline of the college rot, stop the rot before the vocational system bleeds dry. And we're told in an exclusive by Kyla Lusikinian, taxpayers have funnelled more than $1 billion to 15 private colleges. That's only one, 15 
the 15 that have been found out, there's many, many more that are doing exactly the same thing. So this billion dollars could in fact be many billions and that could have been put into our schools, our public schools and TAFEs. The Australian Skills Quality Authority yesterday revealed that five more colleges had failed compliance audits as part of a regulatory crackdown driven by a blowout in the government's student loan scheme. ASQA has slapped conditions or threatened to deregister 15 of 22 training outfits targeted in special audits this year. And the colleges have together pocketed $1.02 billion in taxpayer funding through the VET Fee Help Scheme this year alone. So that's this year alone, what happened last year and the year before. Uh, and we're told that they're going to try to do something about it, but one wonders whether or not it is actually possible uh, because of their privatisation ideology and their running down of the TAFE colleges, perhaps the horse has bolted together with all of our money. The real problem is, of course, that this billion dollars is now a debt which has been visited upon the next generation of children who who were persuaded uh, through extraordinary means, I think it was the offer of a computer, to sign up to do these uh, courses. Many of them never finished. Many of them now have a debt and uh, they will have it for the rest of their life uh, unless something can be done about it. We're told in the age also that the dodgy colleges are still using the lure of a free laptop to get often intellectually disabled young people signed up for courses that they will never finish. So how are they going to pay for them? Is there social security welfare payments? Are they going to be um, uh, taken by the government uh, to pay for our taxpayers' money that has been poured into making profits for these people? Uh, this is a much more uh, story-like narrative uh, report by Michael Bachelard uh, on Monday, November the 23rd, 2015. And if you go to the AGE website, you can see some through YouTube uh, some sales representatives illegally offering free laptops to various people in disadvantaged suburbs. So we're told that at least three salesmen pulled up outside a housing commission unit, their car boot packed with more than 20 new laptops ready to be given away. And this poverty-stricken street in regional Queensland was one of the front lines of Australia's out-of-control vocational education sales industry. It's the biggest get-rich-quick scheme in Australia and Hamza has driven all the way from Victoria to play his part. So you have people who are being employed, they're desperate for employment and uh, they are employed probably uh, on commission to sell education to people who will be in debt for life for something which they may never uh, either use or need or finish. So although the federal government have cracked down, tightening the laws and promising more rules on January the 1st, the ACCC has launched prosecutions against the Sydney College Unique International, which has allegedly targeted vulnerable people in Aboriginal communities. It's also flagged its intention to go after another college, the Melbourne Phoenix Institute. Well, by the time they're finished, one wonders whether they'll get anything much back from these people since they've already got the money, our money, I might add, out of the government. And uh, who is responsible for this? I suggest that Minister Pine and the uh, Labor government also, uh, particularly here in Victoria, should be held responsible for what has happened to our wonderful public TAFE colleges. But if we wanted to have uh, a broader view of this and what is being prepared for us in the future, particularly by the uh, Harper report, 
uh, which we dealt with last year, last week, and which, if you want to find more about the Harper Report and uh, what it means for the marketisation of human services, all human services in Victoria, you will uh, find uh, it on our website at www.adogs.info. But John Foster has been sending us some very interesting material from up the country. John Foster, uh, I think, hangs out up in the Large Hope Valley, but he sends some very interesting material on the email. Thank you, John. And he's sent us something from the New York Review of Books. Um, and there is a book entitled Reimagining Journalism, The Story of the 1%. And we find out that despite fizzling out within months, the Occupy Wall Street, remember the Occupy Wall Street movement, which really did cause a ripple in the United States, it succeeded in changing the terms of political discussion in America. Inequality, the concentration of wealth, the 1% and the new Gilded Age all became fixtures of national debate thanks in part to the protesters who camped out in the Zuccotti Park in Lower Manhattan. Even the Republican presidential candidates have felt compelled to address the matter. And we, of course, here in Australia, had uh, various uh, ripples also. The ripple effect of the Occupy Wall Street came almost as far as Australia. And for people like John Foster, who have been keeping their their finger on the pulse, it has become quite important. News organisations, meanwhile, produced regular reports on the fortunes of the wealthy, the struggles of the middle class and the travails of those left behind. Even amid the outpouring of coverage of rising income inequality, however, the richest Americans have remained largely hidden from view. Uh, But there's a question as to actually who they are. And one of them is a gentleman called Mr Singer. And Mr Singer is a billionaire who features when you get to the question of charter schools. Now, charter schools are very much on the agenda as independent public schools, which will be taken over by big businesses like McDonald's or worse than others here in Australia. And there has been a lot of talk about them and a lot of controversy because they are in existence in the United States. And I'd like to read to you from uh, this article that has been sent uh, to us from uh, John Foster. For the American journalist whose article John Foster has sent us, he, he finds Singer fascinating. He believes that Singer typifies the ability of today's ultra-rich. We're talking here about multi-multi-billionaires. We do have them here in Australia, but we know who they are. In America, they're still managing to remain faceless men. But Singer's face has um, been seen around the charter school movement. And they've am- these people have amassed tremendous power while remaining out of the limelight. You call them oligarchs. Remember the old Greek oligarch. Singer did receive a flurry of attention in late October when news broke of his decision to back Marco Rubio's presidential bid. But it quickly faded and he moved back into the shadows. Going online... The journalist found out from Forbes that Singer's worth about $2 billion. He's the single largest donor to the Republican Party, with his money going overwhelmingly to candidates who support free enterprise and oppose regulation. A major exception is his support for groups promoting gay rights and same-sex marriage because his son happens to be gay. From the Times... He learned that the fundraiser's singer hosts in his apartment on Manhattan's Upper West Side can net more than one million a session. And he read in the Wall Street Journal that he was instrumental in the selection of Paul Ryan as Mitt Romney's running mate in 2012. 
In a detailed profile of Singer in Mother Jones, Peter Stone noted that Elliot Management has frequently been called a vulture fund. Why? Because a chunk of its profits comes from buying distressed companies or countries' debts at a steep discount. In 2012, a subsidiary of the firm, seeking to extract full payment from Argentina for some bonds on which it had defaulted, had an Argentine naval vessel impounded in a Ghanaian port. So you're dealing with big players, big money, big hedge funds that can bring down a country. Back in 2004... Singer contributed $5,000 to Swift Boat Veterans for Truth, which attacked John Kerry's war record, badly damaging his presidential bid. And since then, he's given generously to American Crossroads and the Club for Growth, an anti-tax group that has backed many Tea Party candidates. So Singer's influence extends far beyond that. Now, this is where it gets very interesting. He's chairman of the board of the Manhattan Institute, a member of the board of Commentary magazine and a major donor to the American Enterprise Institute. He has given to and sat on boards of several organisations dedicated to a strong Israel, including the Jewish Institute for National Security Affairs, the Republican Jewish Coalition, the American Israel Education Foundation, an affiliate of the American Israel Public Affairs Committee that sponsors trips to Israel by members of Congress, and so on. He's given $3.6 million to the Foundation for the Defence of Democracies, which has worked tirelessly to isolate and sanction Iran. Now, all of these groups were also active in the campaign to kill the nuclear deal with Iran, and as the journalist examined their interlocking boards and overlapping missions, he became aware of the enormous political, financial and lobbying infrastructure behind that campaign. Now, let's talk about this Paul Singer, this multi-billionaire that um, the Huffington Post and others uh, are looking at because he has a face. Most of the great billionaires in America don't let their face be shown like the Hearsts and the others. But um, Paul Singer has a face and he is involved in the field of education. He's involved in the close but opaque ties between the hedge funds, the charter schools and New York politics because the charter schools are very strong in New York. And Joel Klein from New York had a lot of influence on Julia Gillard. And the charter schools are in the background of the Harper Report's attempts to completely deregulate education in Australia and lay it open to the market. But when we talk about the market, we're really talking about profits for these hedge funds, aren't we? So let's talk about Mr Singer and the charter schools. I'm sorry, I've lost it. Now, the gentleman who I am quoting from, from says, whichever side one takes in the great debate over charter schools and the dogs know where they stand, they're against them, the movement to promote them has become a potent political force whose activities and backers often remain in the shadows. So you can document how in the fall of 2014, Singer gave $500,000 to a hastily assembled PAC called New Yorkers for a balanced Albany, the goal of which was to elect Republicans to the New York State Senate and keep that body in their hands. The PAC was organised by Students First New York, an advocacy group that supports charter schools. The expanded use of standardised testing, there's money in that, the linking of teachers' pay to test results, payment by results, and 
you know, a much outmoded idea, and other elements of the so-called education reform movement. Students First New York was founded by Joel Klein, the school's counsellor under Michael Bloomberg, Mike Michelle Ray, the former Washington, D.C. school's chancellor, and the billionaire hedge fund managers Daniel Loeb and Paul Tudor-Jones. The PAC was set up out of fear that if the Democrats won control of both houses of the New York legislature, they would approve measures to limit the growth of charter schools. Singer was one of about a dozen financial titans who together donated more than $4 million to the PAC, which used the money to mount an intensive lobbying and ad blitz in the weeks prior to the November 2014 election. The Democrat candidates were backed by some $3.6 million from the political arm of the State Teachers Union. So you're dealing with big money for big lobbying. And there's not that many people involved excepting they belong to the 1% who own the 90% of the wealth. While working to elect Republican state legislatures, these same hedge fund managers also contributed millions of dollars to back the Democratic Governor Andrew Cuomo in his re-election bill. Given the strong support of those managers for charter schools, their contributions may help to explain why Cuomo has so vigorously backed the expansion of such schools in the face of New York Mayor Bill de Blasio's effort to curtail them and instead concentrate on public schools. And de Blasio's position in turn was no doubt influenced by the strong backing that he had received from the teachers' unions. Now, the Students First New York, just think of the name of it, Students First New York. It's not Students First New York, it's Billionaires First New York, is now amassing a war chest to promote charter schools in the 2016 legislative elections. And in June, Singer gave one million to its political action committee. Now, the the um, journalist who wrote this article uh, learned about that contribution from a story that appeared in July in the New York Times and its focus was this Students First New York, which I'm calling Billionaires First New York, and its efforts to keep alive Michael Bloomberg's education agenda which particularly favours charter schools and the information about the sums donated by Singer and other hedge fund managers was buried deep in the article and easily overlooked. But he found a more pointed account by the Washington Park Project, a public policy group which was titled Corruption in Education, Hedge Funds and the Takeover of New York Schools. It was written by Muhammad Khan and Zephyr Teachout, the Fordham Law Professor who ran for governor against Cuomo in 2014. And the study offered an eye-opening look at the large sums being spent by what it called a tiny group of powerful hedge fund executives seeking to take over educational policy in the state. This lightning war on public education, they wrote, was hasty and secretive and driven by unaccountable private individuals and it represents a new form of political power and therefore requires a new kind of political oversight. Well, I could go on and on about the corruption and the power behind the scenes lobbying concerning the privatisation of public education in America. But the reason, dear listeners, I'm doing this, well, the reason I will tell you after we've just had a little bit of music from Jeannie Kelso, an Australian opera singer, and uh, she is playing the harp. And this is produced by David Kinsella.
Welcome back to the dogs, uh, 8.55 on the AM dial 3CR. And you've just been listening to Jeannie Kelso singing, I'm sure a song that all the oldies know anyway, The Road to the Isles. And uh, before she started singing, I was uh, saying, why have I been telling you about the shenanigans, the lobbying, and the corruption of public education, or the, the corruption of educational provision in New York State and throughout America by big hedge fund managers. It's big money, it's big lobbying, uh, it's uh, influence in the corridors of power. Why am I talking about this? I'm talking about this because we are dealing with trade agreements. Mm-hmm. And we are dealing with a Harper report which says that human services, all of them, education, age services, uh, health services, should all be open to this thing called competition, which is code for market, which is code for big money making money at public expense. Our taxpayers' money will go to assist the profiteering of people who are going to hold our next generation to ransom because our next generation, their right as citizens in a democracy is the right to a first-class public education paid for with our taxes, the same as all of our citizens have the right to a decent health system paid for with our taxes. Our taxes are being given at the moment to vet providers who are taking our children for a ride and involving them in debts forevermore with our money. There's a lot of money wandering around the world in hedge funds that is looking for a place to park it and make more money at public expense. And they see insecure middle-class parents as good consumers that can be taken for a ride very easily. And they are putting pressure in our corridors of power. And what Trevor Cobold found Thorley doing, and what Pine and Abbott are doing is actually singing from this hymn sheet. And I use the term hymn sheet because it is an ideology, it is a religion, and it is an opium which people, which the people behind it, the faceless men with billions and billions of dollars wanting more and more billions and billions of dollars are um, imposing upon us. And I think that we who have learned, yes, some of us may have belief systems, but we also have had an education and we know how to sort out the rubbish from the reality. I think it is beholden upon us to inform ourselves about what is really going on. And we're very fortunate that there are journalists who are doing this and we're even more fortunate that that we have people like John Foster who keep us informed because... We can't run our dog's program by ourselves. We can only run it with people who help us and send us material. 
So I'll, um, I'll leave it there for a moment and we'll have another song, another message. Thank you very much. Get the lowdown on the know-how, the food know-how. Victorian households are throwing away over $2,000 a year in wasted food. That's just not smart. You can be smarter than the average Victorian by joining Food Know How and learn simple steps to reduce your food waste, save money and protect the environment. This program is free to residents of Yarra, Moreland, Darabin, Maribyrnong or Whittlesea. Visit foodknowhow.org.au. Funding for the project provided by Victorian Government's Metropolitan Local Government Waste and Resource Recovery Fund. The Food Know How program is a 3CR supporter. Get the lowdown on the know-how, the food know-how. Victorian households are throwing away over $2,000 a year in wasted food. That's just not smart. You can be smarter than the average Victorian by joining Food Know How and learn simple steps to reduce your food waste, save money and protect the environment. This program is free to residents of Yarra, Moreland, Darabin, Maribyrnong or Whittlesea. Visit foodknowhow.org.au. Funding for the project provided by Victorian Government's Metropolitan Local Government Waste and Resource Recovery Fund. The Food Know How program is a 3CR supporter. For three years, teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. We're a proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. Our education is not for profit. Our education is not for profit. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Well, you're listening to 3CR 855 on the AM dial and this is the Dogs Program and uh, I'm going to pass you over again to Dale and we're going to have a good news story. <laughs> Thanks, Jean. It's, it's nice to have a good news story. Today, uh, this is an article, another article from Trevor Cobalt and the Save Our Schools website and crew. It's entitled "Fighting for Equity in Education: The Struggle is No, The Struggle is Long, But Hope is Longer." Integrating immigrant children in school is an Australian success story. A new OECD report provides some interesting perspective on the debate over immigration in Europe and the Paris attacks. It shows a sharp contrast between the integration of immigrant children in schools in France and Belgium compared to Australia. Immigrant children in France and Belgium are the most alienated in the OECD, indicating a failure of integration, whereas far fewer immigrant children in Australia are alienated from school. Three in every five children from first and second generation immigrant families in France and two in five in Belgium do not feel they belong to school, compared to one in five in Australia. Andreas Schleicher, the director of the OECD Directorate for Education and Skills, told the independent newspaper that a significant problem with the school system in France and Belgium is that they are blind to diversity and very standardised. The report shows that while Australia has fewer alienated immigrant students than many OECD countries, it does have more than in several others, such as Austria, Finland, Greece and Spain. This suggests that Australia still faces challenges in maintaining its successful multicultural society. The OECD's report... Helping Immigrant Students to Succeed at School draws on a survey of 15-year-old students as part of the Program of International Student Assessment, PISA, in 2012. It says that schools play a crucial role in integrating immigrant children and building communities, and how well children feel they belong in school is a good indicator of how they are integrating into their wider community. It's an introduction to the report... Andreas Schleicher says, how school systems respond to migration has an enormous impact on the economic and social well-being of all members of the communities they serve, whether they have an immigrant background or not. 
Australia is one of the highest proportions of immigrant students in the OECD. The report shows that our school system has been highly successful in integrating immigrant children. Immigrant children in Australia achieve amongst the highest results in the OECD. Schools with high concentrations of immigrant students have better results than those without immigrant students. Immigrant students who attended pre-primary schools have the highest reading results in the OECD. And teachers are among the most well-prepared in the OECD for teaching in multicultural classrooms. Australian immigrant 15-year-olds achieve high results in the PISA tests. Second-generation immigrant 15-year-olds in Australia have the highest results in reading and mathematics, and first-generation students have the highest results apart from Canadian immigrant students. Australia is the only country in the OECD where first- and second-generation students achieve higher results in reading and mathematics than non-immigrant students. In contrast, non-immigrant students in France and Belgium achieve much higher results than immigrant students. In France, the gap has increased significantly since 2003, whereas immigrant students in Australia have increased their advantage over non-immigrant students. In Australia, nearly 70% of immigrant students are in schools, where at least 50% are immigrant students. However, It is one of only four OECD countries where schools with a high concentration of immigrant students have better results than those without immigrant students. The point score difference for mathematics in Australia is the highest of any OECD country except for Israel after accounting for school and student socioeconomic background. The report says that absorbing the youngest immigrant children into the school system is certainly the most effective way of integrating them linguistically and culturally into their new communities. In Australia, immigrant children are slightly less likely than non-immigrant children to have attended pre-primary education. Immigrant children who have attended pre-primary education have higher reading results at age 15 than immigrant children in any OECD country. However, there's a significant gap in, those, in the results of those who've attended pre-primary education and those who've not in Australia. The gap's equivalent to about one and a half years of learning and is similar to the OECD average. The report notes that handling cultural diversity in class is difficult and requires preparation on the part of teachers. The PISA results reveal that within countries, there are large differences in schools' preparedness to handle multicultural student populations and consequently in their perception of diversity as a hindrance to rather than a resource for learning. Nevertheless, Australia has been highly successful in preparing teachers for multicultural classrooms. Australia has the lowest percentage of lower secondary teachers indicating that they have a high need for professional development in a multicultural or multilingual setting of any OECD country except for the Netherlands. Only 5% of lower secondary teachers in Australia indicated that they have a high need for professional development in this area. Despite Australia's overall success in integrating immigrant children in school and achieving average results, some immigrant children do not have a successful school experience. The average results of students from Middle Eastern, North African and Pacific Island countries are significantly below those of other immigrants, especially East Asian students. Many schools struggle struggle to overcome socioeconomic and cultural barriers to improve education and social outcomes. These schools need significant additional resources to make a difference. It's critical to maintaining Australia's multicultural success story. The abandonment of the Gonski funding scheme by the Abbott government has put this at risk. The Turnbull government must resurrect the plan and Labor must give it its full support. Well, we hear lots and lots and lots of discussion about de-radicalisation. Nobody has actually given credit to our state schools for how we have integrated so many children 
through our public education system and the wonderful work, the wonderful education actually, uh, the non-immigrant children are receiving. Um, Every time I go to collect my grandson from school, I'm amazed at the wonderful education that he's receiving, not only from an extremely skillful teacher, but just from all the different children who are running around the um, around the playground. Mm. And uh, if we want to integrate, then I assure you the best thing is uh, for all the mothers to get together. And in the playground, at least of one one public school, I know they are just happily chatting with each other. And um, mm. It can only only do good, but um, yes, that was a nice story, yeah. and uh, I don't think that the public system has been given nearly enough credit for what we have done, what we are doing, and also what we will do in the future, because we're not going away. The dogs are certainly not going away, and if the um, Save Our Schools people, but also the Reopen Our Schools people is anything to go by, then uh, public education has got a very good future. In New South Wales, it is doing very nicely, thank you. They are um, spending quite a lot of money on a great big new uh, selective high school uh, and other schools out in the west of Sydney, near the University of Western Sydney. It is going to be a um, uh, an agricultural high school like the James Roos High School, I suppose, because the James Roos High School just usually produces, well, it's the probably the best school in Australia as far as results are concerned, whatever that means. But um, they're going to do do it again. Meanwhile, the good news is that up Mernda Way, which at the moment has only got a Catholic high school and a Seventh-day Adventist high school with very, very few students. I'm not sure that it's a high school yet. It's in the failed Acacia College, uh, Uniting Church debacle. And the Ivanhoe Grammar School, they can go there. And there's a Plenty Valley Christian School. But from 2017, they will be able to go to Amunda High School, P to 12. Uh, It's started. It is a private-public partnership, but at least something is going up. And the idea of free education uh, is still alive, well, and uh, flourishing in Munda. And I think that the parents who got together and and uh, made sure that Daniel Green knew about their needs, Daniel Green being their Labor Party representative, they should be given a great deal of credit. Mm, but, congratulations. Uh, but <laughs> we've, um, we've had a fairly full program and we hope that um, you've learnt something from us today and um, you'll be back next week at uh, 12 midday again to listen to the Dogs Program. And if you want to find out more about what you've heard today, uh, you can go to our website at www.adogs.info. But bye for now. Died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, just says I, him standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I'm dead, says Joe, but I'm Says, killed you, Joe. They shot you, Joe, says I. Takes more than guns to kill a man, says Joe. I didn't die, says Joe. I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes. Says Joe, what they can never kill Went on to organize Went on to organize From San Diego up to Maine In every mine and mill Where 
workers strike and organize. It's there you find your hill. It's there you find your hill. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. Oh,